Hello, and welcome to Unseen Being, our monthly show where we talk to artists, scientists, and each other about what the hell is happening inside our brains and bodies when we experience the world around us. We explore some of the intangible and overlooked experiences that contribute to the way we feel. What happens at the center of our experiences when we listen to music, walk in nature, sit on our phones, make morning coffees, zone out and get into the flow, or simply dance around the room. All of these tiny micro experiences contribute to the way we feel, act and behave. So in this podcast, we take you on a mini journey of self-discovery, exploration, and feed your curiosity about some of the most overlooked yet instrumental elements that contribute to your well-being. Consider this an audio handbook curated by artists, scientists, philosophers, and technologists, a critical guide to understanding the well-being of experience in the current age. We bring you the latest in scientific discoveries, but cut the academic jargon and help enhance your understanding of the way everyday experiences impact you, and potentially an understanding of some of the tiny changes you can make to improve the way you feel. We are Robin and Catherine, and together we're the founders of Kindest Studios, a creative science studio that explores the aesthetics of human experience. So today's episode is all about technology. Technology gets a pretty bad reputation at the moment. Yes, we are living in an era where technology is distracting us from each other and ourselves. We're living in the attention economy where we are disconnected, we are lost in our phones and our computers. But actually, that's a very modern type of technology. Technology itself simply means tools, tools that have helped us evolve, go faster, be better. So to me, technology includes everything from fire to language and even music. So we want to look today about the role of technology in human experience. How can it be something that rather than disconnect us could actually connect us, enhance us, support our transformation? Experiences created by artists, for example, that provide new ways of seeing the world and help us explore the more unseen aspects of being. So here at The Kindest Studios, we're always the most fascinated by these unseen aspects of science, those which we can't really totally see or measure, but we can feel in our bodies, we sense that they're there. One might call this the kind of intangible or felt experience. But what's really exciting is that we're beginning to scratch the surface with science about what we can unveil with these unseen aspects. And a lot of that is being explored with new technologies, not just in the science lab, but also in the way that we explore these kind of intangible sensations as humans. Experiences around sound and the vibratory nature of sound and how that makes our bodies feel. You know, people using haptics to communicate the vibrations of sound to really connect us to our body more deeply. Also, the notion of connecting to nature and also how we're using new technical experiences to draw us closer to the natural world or more just embodied aspects of being that we'll speak about throughout the episode in regards to these immersive aspects. And All of these really impact connection and well-being in a really big way. So today's episode is looking at technology at the center of all of these aspects. So yeah, the role of technology in all of this. Now the irony being that we have been isolated, we've been stressed, the pandemic has been a really unusual situation for us. We are social creatures. And for the first time ever, we've been jumping at technology to connect us. 
Reality for a while has been digital and it's coming back to life. But what's exciting about the technology that we have is that we can actually enhance that reality around us. No place is that more obvious than the direction that a lot of art and immersive art is taking. That direction of literally using technology to translate the world around us to give us alternate realities, to transform us. So we're gonna start this show today by talking to our collaborator and visual artist extraordinaire, Hannah Marshall, whose work with light and immersive sound creates transformative experiences which highlight the impermanence of life and being. Now, Hannah is an award-winning multidisciplinary artist and creative director, and she's notable for her distinct aesthetic of black and light. In her own words, it's a quiet force that cuts through the noise. And she employs minimalism as a visceral agent to distill and connect with raw human emotion. She creates these alchemic emotional experiences that render the viewer truly human. And she also, I should note, curated the playlist for today. My name is Hannah Marshall. I am a multidisciplinary artist and creative director. My experiential-led practice aims to amplify human connection individually and collectively through the power of sound, space and light. The multisensory work binds my aesthetic and spiritual hybrid, which synthesizes this dichotomous relationship between silence and sound. I'm driven by social impact and human consciousness, and my intention is to encourage deeper listening within the internal and external worlds we inhabit. What always interests me when I talk to Hannah about her work is that she never sees the technology as dominating. It sits under the surface. And yet it's through technology, the use of sound and light and this very distinct aesthetic and feeling that she creates with it when you experience part of her work, that technology lies underneath it. Um, and it really does transform you, it gives you new perspectives. It creates this cognitive and emotional change, which is what we mean really by transformative art. It's art that precipitates individual social change. And as Hannah says, her work really addresses this. How can we change society? How can we be connected to parts of ourselves or each other, especially in like this disconnection that we're all experiencing? I have this on-off connection with technology. In contrast to the predominant culture, I believe that our volume isn't our value and that technology is there to be used, not for it to use us. Since this worldly shift began, I've experienced and embodied quiet in a new profound way. Only when the external noise dissipates, our internal sound becomes audible. Human beings are linked through this invisible thread. So I think that we have this responsibility to ourselves and to each other. The question is, if we don't unplug from the matrix and are constantly tuned into the same station, how can we find our own frequency? If we don't, we risk becoming a container of information overload and losing our autonomy and freedom as individual human beings that operate with consciousness and sovereignty. This idea of sovereignty we're going to come back to. How much agency do we have over our own reality? 
but I asked Hannah to describe one of her pieces of work so that you get a sense of how using technology such as light and sound, you can, as an audience member, access the more invisible aspects of your own reality. I had a solo exhibition called Quiet, 11 days and 11 pieces of work across installation, art and audiovisual. It was a personal project that is close to my heart about the power of quiet and human connection in our increasingly noisy, fragmented and hyper-connected world, inviting people to contemplate the relationship of quiet to noise as an intrinsic part of our daily lived experiences. On entering the gallery, visitors were invited to follow the journey of a series of black objects which occupied the space, beginning with a singular power cord falling from above, which flowed in and out of the artworks before dropping onto the ground to form a sea of wire, a mass of channels and connectivity. The power cords being reminiscent of human physiology and the flows of electrical energy into and emanating from within the body. The surface of each object represented both a physical boundary between the interior and exterior and the symbolic relationship of the internal life force that exists in each of us and the world of outside influences. The wall of each piece was permeated with the word quiet, either in alphabetic text or braille, allowing light or your own mirrored image to reflect out. The entire gallery experience was bathed with a heartbeat, allowing visitors to slow down and to plug into their own pulsatory rhythm. We love working with artists like Hannah, where we can use her creative essence, her intuition and her passions and blend them with science to really deepen the transformative nature of her work. We do this with artists like Hannah, where we marry the science with the creative and we can better utilize tech to really transform these deeper connections and create more meaning from experiences. Working on live events always feels exciting with this sense of urgency. I love to create and curate environments that collectively encourage people to tune into the same pulsatory rhythm. My favorite music artists to collaborate with are the ones that are visceral performers with this high octane energy. It radiates out and it powers up the audience like electricity. In that moment, everything feels all right in the world. And right now, we are so deprived of these experiences, which only happen at live shows. I'm always so inspired by people like us who share this, this mission to, to connect each other. I really do feel that somehow connection is key. Well, we know it's key to our well-being. We really do. Isolation and loneliness is a really unnatural state for us. In fact, if you are isolated or lonely, your chance of having dementia goes up by 50%. Your chance of having heart disease goes up by 50%. Cortisol, stress, which exasperates so many diseases, just rises and rises. Anything that can help us connect with others or connect with our body. This idea of technology rather than taking us away from ourselves, to helping us return to our body, the embodied experience, as Hannah explained. It's vital for us to remember the bodies that encase our existence. 
in order to live in a more embodied way. My body has become like pages of my handwritten diary, words permanently inked into my skin to act as reminders, words such as impermanence, listen, human, and quiet noise. Inscribed words are sometimes actually mirrored so that only when facing my reflection that the word can be deciphered. This, for me, acts as an anchor, a gravitational pull back to self, a return to sender. Anna's work is a perfect example of how she blends the physical world and uses light and sound to really transform your experience of reality. We're seeing so much of that now. You know, right now we have Roy Giacchita at Winnie Do the Strand who has a very intense, incredibly sensory full body exhibition. It really pushes the senses and really creates a feeling that makes us almost push the boundaries of how we feel in space and how comfortable or uncomfortable we are. And what I think we really loved about that exhibition is every room provided a different sense of self that allowed you to inhibit a different state of being. For me, some of the rooms actually made me feel very uncomfortable in my body. I didn't want to scream and get out, but my body kind of said, mm, don't like it here. It gave me an experience. It gave me a different experience of self. And I think What's really interesting is how we can play with those built environments and use those kind of created structures to almost mimic real life environments. So another group that's doing such amazing work is the Living Systems Architecture Group, who's also out of Canada. Loads of Canadian artists today repping the home country. <laughs> Big up to Canada. Um, so they've collaborated with 4D Sound on a series of projects which ask questions like, could future building think, feel, or even care as humans do? You know, they develop these built environments with qualities that come close to life, that can even move and respond and adapt even empathetically to their inhabitants. So some of their installations have mimicked the human nervous system, which actually responds to viewers' movements with patterns of light, vibration, and multi-channel sound. See, I love all of this. I love the idea that we can start to actually have agency in the shaping of reality, and we can use technology to give us control over the reality around us. I went with Robin to the Roy Aikida exhibition. It was the first thing we did after lockdown, and it kind of bleached my brain. Presented with rooms of intense sound that made me feel slightly sick, and intense light. I mean, it was incredible. Um, but, you know, putting us, creating a reality that we cannot experience in in everyday life. It was phenomenal. And we're going to see more and more of this. And so that's why we sort of asked Hannah about her vision for the future. Due to technology, there's an increasing vacuum of human connection, meaning we've lost touch with real connection. Depersonalization and derealization leaves people feeling like nothing around them exists, including themselves. The takeaway being about how important it is to use our voice, to be heard and never ever silence. The power of quiet in making our own noise. So as you can see, more and more artists are using technology to create experiences that transform our reality. Uh, and this can be very, very, very powerful. And I wonder if you could actually explain what happens to you and why entering an immersive world can actually have this transformative experience on you. Uh, yeah, of course. This is one of my favourite areas to talk about in aesthetic science. So 
we know that context is so crucial to the experience we have out of a out of a situation. You know, we've all been at an experience where uh, a gig was incredibly moving. It was incredibly powerful. Maybe it was the people you were there with, or where you were located in relation to the stage, or even the shape of the building. But what happens when we go to these immersive experiences is these artworks are charged with emotions. You know, they're charged with things that stir emotions in our body, create this arousal response. They make our heart heartbeat, they make us sweat, loads of different responses we have inside. And whether we like it or not, it might be watching a horror film or it might be listening to a sad song, but these artworks are charged with feeling and it allows us to process our own feelings in our own bodies. You know, we've all had the experience that, you know, turning inwards to access or to address your own emotions can be a scary place. We don't always like to go there. So when we're experiencing the emotions that are embedded within artworks, they don't belong to us. There's a distance between us and the emotion itself. So whether we consciously know it's happening or not, our experience of that emotional piece is actually transmuting the emotions in our own body. It's allowing us to turn inward to them through this sort of external cue. And that's why we have that rich feeling when we listen to a piece of sad music or that huge sense of nostalgia that takes place. Or, you know, when you leave, you know, a gallery feeling just quite open and transmuted inside, it's actually loads of sensations in your body that are stirring up loads of different emotional responses. And also, you know, it doesn't just stop there. More and more we see art uses technology to extend our senses, to change our reality. Now, reality is a very shaky thing. Reality, we access only about 1% of the audiovisual spectrum. You're listening to this in a room, but you're not actually. The room and this sound is all being created in your head. And so we're seeing more and more artists actually just taking charge and altering our reality. Now, of course, the obvious one is VR, and we don't have time to go into that to detail, but it is often called the empathy machine because it can put you in another person's uh, point of view, another person's shoe. We see wonderful VR, for example, Marshmallow Laser Feast and the Eyes of the Animal, where you inhabit different animals of the jungle, and it gives you a better connection to those animals. We see empathy body swaps, where people are put into the body of someone of a different colour, and it's been known to reduce racism. But Beyond that, we have art now which has extended our senses because we have technology like haptic technology which can make us feel different things. We can control scent, we can control sound, vision, and we are sensorial beings. Exactly, which is one of the reasons why these immersive experiences are so strongly connected to our sense of self because we experience the world through our bodies. We experience the world through our senses. And as Catherine said, with the body swaps, there's loads of other VR experiences that are helping in therapeutic aspects because they use this multi-sensory learning environment. So we know that there's VR therapy for Alzheimer's, art therapy, PTSD. People are using spatial sound for hearing aids and implants. So it's not just using the technology in artistic experiences that supports us but it's really using technology as an art form itself. But here's the thing, we're just, we're just gonna clear the air on this right now, yeah? Yeah. We have more than five senses, people. Way more. We have upwards of 21 senses that are both external, like the touch, like the taste, and also internal, like our ability to know we have to pee, or even our ability to sense where our bodies are in space. You know, with our eyes closed, my, my yoga teacher always says, you know, we're in this kind of 
meditation, our eyes are closed, you're super calm, and she wants us to lay back. And she always says, lay back, keep your eyes closed. Your body will know where the mat is. You know, that sense of our body knowing where it is in space, proprioception, is a, is a big one. The one we're going to choose to share with you today is magnetoreception. So like migrating birds and other animals, we may as well, humans, have this sense of magnetic north that links us to the earth and the planetary phases. We, we historically, in more traditional times, would have used it to navigate home, but it also helps us navigate our inner sense of home within. And so we can amplify this sense through experiences in places, shout outs to the flotation tank, my favorite place to be. But other people have taken this a step further, haven't they? They have indeed. And there's a wonderful organization called Cyborg Nest, who believe not in just creating technology, but becoming technology. And one of their first pieces of work was called the North Sense. And it was a box implanted into your chest that when you turn to magnetic north, it buzzed. Now, what's wonderful about this is it seems to be something you think which is making us less human. But when I talked in depth with uh, Olivia Babbitts, who was an officially recognized cyborg and, the, and the, one of the founders of Cyborg Nest about this sense he had in his chest, he actually said it made him more human and more connected to himself and his family and even nature. Because at every point, he knew where he was in the world. He knew which direction his home was, which direction his son was. And so, you know, what's wonderful is perhaps these are senses that, that we used to have much more strongly, which we're using technology now to actually rediscover. All that leads us to kind of the last part of our discussion today. So we've looked at the role of technology to put us in touch with our senses, to extend our senses, give us new perspectives and realities. And we want to look now at technology which goes even a step further to change our reality and perhaps even our consciousness. Now, the idea of what consciousness actually is, we're not going to debate. It's been a debate that's been running since the beginning of time in philosophy and science. At its simplest explanation, though, it's an awareness of our internal and external. It is inherent to all humans and possibly other animals. Whether or not it's an emergent property, we're still trying to work out. Where it is in the brain, we have no idea. The latest suggestion from Roger Penrose is it might be situated in some sort of quantum manner in the microtubules. We talk increasingly about collective consciousness, and now we're even looking, aren't we, at the consciousness of plants. Yeah, definitely. And although we're not going to get into the consciousness of humans today, if anyone's interested in reading more, neuroscientist Enel Seth has a book coming out in September, I think called Being You. You can get your pre-order now at yourfavoritebookshop.org. Obviously, we're exploring loads of the consciousness in both animals and plants. And just last week, there's news that came out that there's potentially going to be a new law coming in for lobsters, crabs, and octopi. They have actually about 500 million neurons in their body, and they have lots of similar features, including short and long-term memory, versions of sleep, and the capacities to actually recognize individual people that we've all obviously seen through our favorite documentary, My Octopus the Teacher. But there's also more evolved science with botanists that show the cognitive abilities such as perception, learning, and consciousness in plants. And it's an exciting time. And so how can technology perhaps not help us understand what consciousness is, but actually give us different consciousness? The last guest we're talking to today is, is a really good friend, an extraordinary mind. He's in fact a collaborator, cognitive scientist, context engineer, many, many things. He's the head of learning and research technology at Ravensbourne University. It's Carl Hayden Smith. And he came to the studio to talk a bit about his work with technology and how we're changing not just our perspectives, but our consciousness with it. 
I'm Colin Hayden-Smith, I'm Director of the Learning Technology Research Centre at Ravensbourne University London and I'm a cognitive scientist very interested in how we use technology to learn. So it's, it's you know, it's we're seeing, you know, a massive problem with the content-based uh, economy where we've, re we've reached peak stuff, we're very much, um, you know, overwhelmed with information and, you know, if we can just tweak our senses then actually we can actually change the way, way we perceive time, we can change the way we understand what we're hearing, and we, we regain control. Um, and I think that's the essence of my work. It's, it's putting, like you say, the human at the center of, of perception. It's very much a case of, you know, if we bring in double consciousness, double consciousness is, you can see it everywhere. So it's, it's this, this understanding of when you put on a VR headset, you're actually, you know, you're in the physical world still, but suddenly you're you're in a in this other world where your brain is jarred. You know, it doesn't know what to think. So if I if I, so that's that's one type of double consciousness. You know, there's lots of examples, and I think that again, just like context engineering, which is this idea that we're coming into a context-based economy, and and you know, you can see the. The, the, the desire for it because everyone wants to be not just watching a film but to be inside the film so it's suddenly this shifting of perspective where you're actually you are the center and you are the, the the one with the agency you're not just a passive observer you have the ability to to make change and i think that's again coming back to the consciousness question we need to take, take charge we need to actually be a part of our consciousness and not be this disembodied disempowered figure it's a rather radical view of the future where you have mastery over your own reality uh, something that we probably don't have at the moment and it's going to be technology that helps us do so as carl explains a bit more what we're doing and why we need it yeah i guess it's sovereignty as well it's about the you know the reality that we're currently in reality has become very fluid because half the people don't believe COVID's real, or they don't believe the vaccines are worth taking, and the other half of you know the population do believe it's very serious and very real. And suddenly, it's you know, who do you believe, and and where do you get your sense making, and and you know what 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 news sources are you listening to? Who which experts do you trust? So I think I think it's it's yeah it's 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 a natural shift. I think moving to this context world where we're making context rather than content. And there's also dangers there, obviously, because, you know, if we had common ground before, I mean, I remember a time when I, there was only four channels on television and then there was a fifth. And I'm sure you remember that too, Catherine. So it's like, if we, if we now look at the reality that we're in, we're all so individually in our own reality tunnels. Another example of context engineering is going to be when mixed reality kicks in and we're suddenly able to um, curate our own visual world. So if you think about Snapchat at the moment where we all wear silly hats or same on Facebook Messenger, you know, we, we put on these masks. Imagine Snapchat in your eyes where you're able to suddenly decide what you're looking at. So, you know, if you don't like men, you'll be able to delete them because when you put on a pair of mixed reality glasses, it creates 3D models of everything you're seeing. So men as a as a you know as a as a shape will be identifiable and deletable you can put whatever you want in their place or you can just have a sign saying don't bump into this space 
So, you know, if you're racist, you can turn everyone black, everyone white, whatever you like. So it doesn't really matter what you'll be wearing because everyone will be able to change what you're wearing. And it'll obviously be only for them. But, you know, so what happens to fashion? What happens to all these elements when we suddenly, you know, are able to context engineer? And I think that's that's the issue that, you know, this this could be, you know, a massively problematic area. So we, we regain control, but we also diminish common reality or common ground. And it's a good point. And, and, and as I said earlier, you know, reality is is slippery, in fact. You know, a lot of it we are creating in our mind. I find absolutely terrifying this idea that, that very soon we can wear contact lenses, you know, technology that's in existence, to choose the reality that we want to see, one that's just individual to us. If we simply don't like something, we don't have to see it, and that is rather dangerous. But for all of this, there are good examples where technology can help us connect with other and even nature. Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in this idea of umwelt hacking. And that just means, as I mentioned, the, the sensorial apparatus. So if we were suddenly, um, you know, seeing like a dog or a cat, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't see color. Um, but if, if, you, if you take it to the extreme, and I'm you know, very interested in, in work, they've got an experience down at the Eden Project at the moment, which is the Wood Wide Web experience where you're able to see underneath the ground. So we know that there's this, this intelligence um, underneath our feet. Uh, it's, it's the mycelium networks interacting with the trees and the plants. And suddenly you're seeing this form of intelligence that's far greater than ours, you could argue. So if we can tailor and personalize and use technology to personalize our understanding of our own bodies and our own, you know, um, our own being, then we then we have a chance to, to to shift our human condition. It's a good point. Technology, in order to have it more perspectives, to give us different consciousness, is actually something we've always done. Yeah, and it takes us back to the notion that technology doesn't need to be a modern digital type of thing. Technology is as old as humans and can be very analog you know, and tied up with lots of ancient practices. And Carl tells us a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, perspective shifting, especially now, is essential. I mean, I lose perspective three or four times a day. And um, I think that, you know, my journal, for instance, journaling is an, is an ancient art. And I think that is a way of regaining your perspective because it allows you a, a form of double consciousness. You're, you're able to be in your point of view as you're walking around the world but if you write a journal um every day suddenly you have the ability to go into to field of view or the overview where you're able to suddenly see things from above so i may just choose to look over the last month in from in one sitting in order to understand what i've actually achieved this month or how my relationship is this month and i get this bird's eye view i get suddenly this overview effect which enables a double consciousness it enables me to suddenly regain perspective and to calm down my physiology to realize I'm not as rubbish as my my constant brain chatter is is telling me and it's it's a it's a hack it's a way of hacking the system and I think it's a very analog hack I really love what Carl's brought up here because we're also really passionate here at Kinda about really broadening the words and definitions of what things mean, as we did earlier in the episode with creativity. 
Perhaps we need to broaden our sense of what technology means. You know, we always think it's digital, but as we said, it can be analog too. And as Ted Carl mentioned, it's not necessarily new. Ancient forms of technology exist, like journaling, as he said, and that is still a piece of creative technology. Putting pen to paper, a form of communication, really transmutes our thoughts into another form. And in that process of transmutation, it can be a really powerful experience. Or what about breathing? You know, these ancient Eastern schools of thought and practices, breathing is really a powerful embodied technology that all of us hold. And so I think it's really important here to just take a minute to broaden our definition of technology and perhaps that will give us more respect or reverence to these ancient tools and carving out more time in our practice and our days and our minds for some of those things, you know. We can often think of technology as, as perhaps this, this bad thing, something that's negative or, or detrimental to our health and well-being in many ways. But if we reframe and broaden our use of it, it's not really what it seems to be on paper or on screen, for that matter. <laughs> it's so true. And actually, I challenge anyone to, to think of something they love and, and technology not be at the basis of it. One of my favourite examples of the villainization of technology is the villainization of computers. Uh, but as actually anyone who loves music itself or transformational technology should really love computers because it was in the creation of the original computer, the Difference Engine, by Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. We've got to give a shout out for for the female who doesn't often get mentioned but was integral to the creation of the Difference Engine. And in fact, it was Ada Lovelace who suggested that perhaps this, this machine could be used for more than code breaking and one day would be perhaps used to produce music. And so in fact, she is the great grandmother of all electronic dance. Technology has many, many nuances to it and many expressions. And I do believe it is vital to our future. And that's something that, that Carl and I have often discussed and, and he echoes. Yeah, I guess it's very much a case of technology is a mirror. And I think that we, we need to be happy with what we're seeing reflected back to us through our technologies. Uh, uh, you know, at this point in time, most people don't trust technology. And I think we need to build trust back in through transparency and through understanding that, you know, there is no way technology is going away. As we mentioned, the technology has been here since fire was invented. And I think that it is our chance to, um, to really regain our humanity if designed well but there's also the danger um, that people become too reliant on technology and technology will not save us. It will not save us alone. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really a co-created activity and, and everyone needs to be on board. All the stakeholders need to be on board. We can't give up our, our power to these corporations like, like Facebook that are carving up the metaverse and basically, you know, you think you own your Oculus device, but you don't own it unless you have a Facebook account. So you're really just renting uh, the device. And, it, and it's really a case of like, you know, putting the Oculus on for five minutes, you're, you, you know, you're, you're mapped in a way that, you know, Facebook knows you very well in 2D to the point where it knows you better than your mother knows you. When Facebook gets your data in 3D, they'll know you better than yourself and be able to predict what you're going to do next. It's such a good point Carl makes about ethical design. You know, we're not going to get into a conversation here about clickbait. 
or algorithms or the things that keep me glued to my blue screen at night, keeping me scrolling, starving me of my beauty sleep and wondering how I even fell down the Instagram rabbit hole in the first place. But of course, yes, Apple and Google, etc. They've introduced these timers for social media and digital well-being campaigns that can help us manage our relationships with technology. But it's really about how these systems are built in the first place, isn't it? And which is why it's so exciting to see these sensory-based human-computer interfaces coming to the fore. And perhaps this is the beginning of how we can be using technology and, and building the technology in a more intentioned way. You know, putting the humans first, as we like to say. Yes, human-first technology. That's something we strongly believe in. And as Carl describes, at its best, technology it is a human catalyst. question of whether we... Um can ever give up technology? No, I don't think so. And I think that what we need to be doing is not going down the, the, the transhumanist route, which you can see everywhere. I mean, you look at Musk, you look at like uh, all of these crazed uh, transhumanists. I think that the point is not to build dependency on technology, but to, to go down a more of a hyperhumanist approach. So hyperhumanism is very much a case of using technology as a catalyst to um, to unlock your an, an innate human abilities. So think about you know cycling. Um, you know when you were given stabilizers. So a good analogy: stabilizers on your bike. You would you would have the stabilizers on there for three months or whatever it took for you to learn how to cycle. So that's the key. It's like how do we how do we use technology as a catalyst to unlock our own abilities and then remove the technology? So the technology becomes the scaffolding. And a good example of that, we talked about the Cyborg Nest North Sense. That's transhumanism. They're, they're, it's a permanent installation. You, you body pierce this device onto your chest. Every time you face north, it vibrates. You know, very fundamentally you know, simple idea, but it's, it's something you have to wear all the time. Uh, there's, a, there's an alternative to that. It gives you the same sense. It's called the Feel Space Belt. And once you, you wear that for six to eight weeks, it's only designed to be worn for six to eight weeks, and then you remove the technology, it gives you the sense and and it's it's like you've trained so it's about training the human system in order to to have that that ability and i think that's the hyperhumanist approach and i think that's again coming back to control where we started talking it's all about regaining your own mastery not giving up your your mastery to the machine I echo Carl's sentiment, you know, his idea that it's not about transhumanism but hyperhumanism technology is not something to be scared of People ask me all the time, are you scared of singularity, computers taking over? No, I'm not. I'm not scared of AI. What I am potentially scared of is the people who write the code, the people who make the technology. And I think we do have to be careful and we do have to be intentional. But it's exciting to see how as hyperhumans, you know, with technology as our accelerator, where we could go. So where does this leave us? You know, Technology at its heart is a tool to help us accelerate faster than mere genetics and evolution allows us. Is it changing our brain as some people have proposed? No, it's not. Although we are outsourcing parts of it to technology, you know, your phone simply in many ways is an external hard drive for your memory. But we must remember that the level of technology we have access to depends on how privileged we are, where we are, who we are. But everybody, everybody has some sort of relationship with technology. And in all of this, we have to be careful what technology we're using and why. As Robin and I discussed earlier, we must put humans at the center. 
We can't, as Carl said, let technology be our master, and in fact, we must master technology, using it with the right intention to be better humans and a better collective. We have incredible technology in existence right now, mind-blowing, in fact. If you can imagine it, it probably is already out there, from nanobots to deliver medicine to individual cells to space stations, and we made it all. And I think that's really important to remember. You know, it came from our human imaginations and our human skill and creation. It's phenomenal. And so I want to leave you with that thought. And with actually the three adages, the laws of the science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote three things to remember about the future and the role of technology in it. Law one. When a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. Law two said that the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And law three, about my favorite, is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I hope to you that those laws, like they are to me, a reminder, always push the boundaries of what we can do and what we can be, and not be in awe of the technology itself, but the humans behind it who have imagined and created it and the places it can take us. Thanks for listening to the show today. We are Catherine and Robin from Kinda Studios. We are here every month on Soho Radio, and we hope you'll join us next month where we have a show talking all about the breath. See you next month.